This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest. Kathleen Saxton is the founder of The Lighthouse Company, a bespoke headhunting firm who are focused exclusively on board level and executive level leadership roles across the globe. She is also the co-producer and chair of Advertising Week Europe, interviewing guests like Sheryl Sandberg, Venus Williams, Malcolm Gladwell, and Sir Martin Sorrell, and many, many more. Uh, from a troubled childhood, she literally started from the bottom and worked herself up to becoming the CEO of a multi-million pound headhunting business. If you are remotely interested in anything to do with media and marketing, executive leadership, the mindset of high-achieving CEOs, then this is the podcast for you. So without me keeping you in suspense any further, my conversation with Kathleen Saxton. My special guest this week is Kathleen Saxton. She is the founder of The Lighthouse Company with offices in London and New York. Their goal is to work with the most talented leaders globally within media, marketing and the advertising sector. They build super teams for their clients and pioneer new talent management. She is also the co-founder and chair of the Advisory Council for Advertising Week Europe, the leading advertising event now planning its eighth year in London. Kathleen is also a qualified psychotherapist and founder of Psyched Global. She brings a positive transformational psychotherapy into corporate boardrooms. I'm very much looking forward to the conversation. Kathleen Saxton, welcome to Agency Dealmasters. Thank you, Nathan. It's really lovely to be with you. Thank you. Absolute pleasure pleasure to have you on the show. You've got just the most unusual and fascinating career journey. You you say that you always wanted to be a dentist at school. So tell us how you got started in the world of media and marketing. It's a bit of a leap, isn't it, from Mm. dentistry to advertising. I wanted to be a dentist all through my childhood. I had an amazing dentist who looked after me and I had this sense that I loved the fact that he was able to calm people and help people that I guess are in trouble or in pain in some way. And I did all my A-levels in the sciences and that was what I thought I was going to be. But my childhood was very difficult, very troubled. Uh, My father's been married many times and came and went. There was a level of violence, unfortunately, in my home. And so the connotation that my parents could either afford or be able to send me to university soon became a bit of a a flimsy idea, unfortunately. And so the view was I needed to get to London, I needed to get a job uh, as soon as I could. And my sense was that um, the only other thing I'd ever been attracted to other than dentistry, I'd seen a lovely documentary on BBC Two about copywriters and advertising. And I felt that was something that was a wonderful thought, a wonderful thing. And so I decided to try and get into the world of advertising in 1990, which some people will remember if they're old enough with another recession. (laughs) When? And there were no roles in 1990. (laughs) So I had to do that classic thing of starting at the bottom. And one of my favorite films is a film called Working Girl with Melanie Griffiths, where she starts off as a secretary and ends up as the CEO. And I guess that was my journey. But I started off as a secretary. I couldn't type. I'd never been taught to type at school. There was no computers at my school, given how old and ancient I am. Um, But I had an amazing boss who took me on uh, and I was a receptionist and then a secretary in a in an agency uh, that went on to become Havas but in those days it was called Booth Locket Makin mm. that became Arena that became Havas and, and literally from there I kind of find my way through and I, I then moved on to jobs in media sales and kind of up and through but I literally started classic story at the bottom. Super inspirational story, and especially coming from such a, a, a troubling childhood and, and, and background experience, 
to to um, pull yourself up um, by yourself to be able to sort of go on and achieve the amazing things that you have subsequently in your career, I think is phenomenal and, and truly inspirational. Uh, and we'll get into some of the reasons why you've been able to do that a little bit later. Uh, but one of the things that, that your CV screams to me is the strength of the sales and commercial roles that you've had in your background. And that's something that really isn't um, discussed or sort of prioritized a lot. What impact has that sales and commercial background had on your career? I think it impacts it every single day. I think there is something about that wonderful soft skill of being able to influence or persuade or cajole and an ability to productize something and sell it in a way that somebody might be able to buy it. So again, all the classic sales training of my youth, you know, you have two ears and one mouth and use them in that proportion, all the classic cliches, mm -hmm. but actually they help me every single day. And I think whoever you're interacting with, trying to be empathetic, you know, standing in someone else's shoes and understanding what they may be feeling and what they may need is the greatest sort of skill you can have as a salesperson, commercial person, understanding how money flows, you know, what is it your client might need to commercially make it worthwhile for them and how does that flow both ways. So empathy is, is the number one skill for mm. any of those things. And I think whether it's in my therapeutic frame, my headhunting frame, uh, in any kind of commercial frame, the empathetic ability is the thing that always supports and helps me. Super interesting. And I'm sure that you would say that being empathetic now for business leaders is probably even more important now that we're in the grips of this global pandemic, being empathetic to both our uh, employees, customers, but also sort of wider stakeholders in, in the community. And we can spend some time talking about that a little bit later. But let's talk a little bit about your background and career first, because you spent four years at PhD, uh, who became part of Omnicom as business development director. That must have been quite an experience. Tell us what it was like. It was wonderful for me. I, I feel I grew up there. Um, I'd had both of my children quite early. So I'd had both the children and I joined there and my skill set was so different to most of the people in the agency. You know, PhD to this day to me is a phenomenal culture. Um, they are planning centric. They are intellectual by nature. If you looked at the Myers-Briggs of that agency, they're mostly introverts. Um, clearly, I was very extrovert and I was very commercial. And I think um, I was concerned when I joined that the body might reject the organ because I was so different to them. Mm. But actually, they needed my skill. Um, and I absolutely loved being enveloped in their intellect and their ability to always do the right thing. They are a very morally focused agency as well. And I love that about them. So my journey there was wonderful. And I started off really selling and doing your business and then adding marketing and to some degree, some level of client servicing. Um, and I love the fact that also they taught me to be brave. So there was times when we had clients that were very, very, you know, badly behaved and PhD would very elegantly, um, stand up to them on occasion would, would remove themselves from working with that client. A, a lot of things that lots of agencies won't do for fear of loss of revenue, but there was something about PhD's belief in the way that they did it. They weren't swayed by the rest of the industry. They had a real sense of purpose. And I think the three partners, so David, Jonathan, and Nick, uh, and obviously Tess Alps, who was very critical then as well, Morag Blazy. There was a number of people that were very influential on me at that time. They were also very different characters. And Nick mm. Hallswell, the H of PhD, is, is my chairman to this day at Lighthouse. And um, 
I'm very good friends still with Jonathan and and, uh, and David. They're very dear to my heart. But there was a celebration of the three of them and Tess being very different characters, respecting each other, bringing different colour to what we were doing um, and having a proposition that was so crystal clear. Um, and as David Patterson used to often say, we'd rather come first or last. We're not interested in anywhere in the middle. We are very clearly right for some clients and clearly very wrong for the rest. And that, and we are OK with that. Hmm. We don't need to be all things to all people. And I think that was very brave of them. Fast forward a few years and you were involved in a consortium to take a particular business that you were involved in private. Uh, you were involved in setting up the business and running the PNL at the young age of just 34 uh, and that must have been just a great learning experience to be able to run quite a, a, a sizable business without the risk that that really crushes a lot of entrepreneurial hopes dreams and ambitions uh, tell us a little bit about that experience yeah I think there's a kind of a, a combination of two things I think in life and I think you see this in new business roles in particular the more you put your hand up to things even if you're not sure how to do them the better exposure you have to many other things. If we only ever stay in our swim lane, we never get to expose ourselves. And you need some courage in that too, because you may fail. But I think my view was that if you volunteer for as many things as possible and you say yes to as much as possible, you get opportunity. So I think running the PL in that particular time, my other partners in that business, none of them really wanted to run the financial or PL side of it. So mm. By default, I got the opportunity. Well, that was fantastic. The other part of it has been I, I've had lots of bosses along the years before I became a boss myself who believed in me or were willing to give me a go. So that mm. although I might not have been fully qualified or fully ready, they were willing to let me take the reins and see how far I could go with it. And I'm incredibly grateful to them. And I've tried to continue that on with my own team because, you know, if they'd never let me have a go, I would never have discovered what I was capable of. Hmm. So so from all of your roles uh, throughout your career at Sky, Bauer Media, PhD, Sachi and Sachi, Virgin Radio, uh, Grace Blue, and, and to now where you are with, with Lighthouse, what have been the main skills you feel that you have, uh, or experiences that you've collected from those places that now enable you to be an effective CEO and leader of Lighthouse? I think there's a few things. The internal learning is I accept with both arms and my heart that in the end it's up to me. I don't look behind me for who else might catch something that that actually maybe it's me that has to do it. And so therefore your sense of internal agency really grows, your ability to believe that if you're determined to do something, you will find the way to make that happen and you can rely on yourself to do that. So in each of those circumstances, there's been points where it has singularly been my part in that chain gang or my leadership that has meant that the, the project either happens or it doesn't. And I've willingly taken that responsibility. Um, I think the other part of that is to also understand that you need to help people understand and to buy you and things. So clear proposition, you know, single brutality of thought, a sense of um, if you can't explain it to your grandma, then probably no one else can understand <laughs> it. So some of these things are so blindingly obvious, mm. but I still see businesses who are over complex in the way that they proposition things 
overlayered in their structuring, mm. too many bosses, which means no one really takes responsibility in the end. And we don't move. And I think in all of the experiences I've had, the other thing that's been present is an urgency and a pace. And there's that classic line of give a busy, busy job to it. So give a job to a busy person. And it gets done. I, I'm a, yeah. And I'm a complete, <laughs> I'm a complete yeah. example of that. So I think that I've learned those things. The one other thing I've learned, though, in the last couple of years is probably something about burnout. You know, I've definitely felt having run the lighthouse for 10 years, trained as a psychotherapist, set up Adweek, etc., said yes to lots of things that actually, you, you know, you begin to feel the physical effects of that. And there is boundary to be learned about actually when to also say no sometimes. There's something in that. Super interesting. And um, I just heard you say as a throwaway comment oh you set up ad week and you also trained as a psychotherapist so each amazing achievements in their own right and we'll come back to each one of them in more detail a little bit later on because just just phenomenal um in 2009 though you sold your shareholding to grace blue and set up lighthouse where you're now the ceo uh, of a multi-million pound headhunting firm what factors led you to that decision i discovered at Grace Blue something that I suspect I will do for the rest of my life in some form, which is to help other people realize their professional dreams. And it is the greatest privilege of my life so far to have done that for so many people. And I'm very grateful to Jay and the team at Grace Blue for even encouraging me to set the business up with them. It was a brilliant journey. But I think that my way of doing it was uh, different. You know, it was just different. I think the team at Grace Blue had already run another company before. They were a very tight unit, brilliant unit. But at the time, digital was really coming up and through. Uh, my sense of quality control was very, very stark um, and clear. Um, and I guess I also had the sense of feeling that I could see a different way of doing it. You know, I would hear what everybody feels about, you know, recruitment consultants and or search specialists. And the complaints are always the same. Hmm. And I think you don't find many people in our industry saying, I want to become a headhunter. Not it's not a career that people ever, you know, find themselves moved towards. And to be perfectly frank, a lot of people have very negative stories about headhunters or, or recruiters. Mm -hmm. And my view on that was I could set up a business that changed the reputation of headhunters. It was a much bigger goal than setting up my own business. It was, can I do something that will change the reputation of a sector? And that was my ambition from the very beginning. And I've mm. got all the original pitch documents I had to myself, and that was my ambition. And so there was a number of things that I knew I had to do in order to make that happen. I had been on the other side of the fence, so I'd experienced lots of different headhunters as talent myself, mm -hmm. uh, and obviously had been a headhunter for a while. So, so I was very clear about some of the things that people didn't like about headhunters. And my view was, can I structure a business and a charging model and a process where both candidates and clients felt differently about that experience. But I knew that if we did that, we had to consistently stick to the way that we did it in order for people to become relaxed and trusting about the way that we worked. And I knew that that would take some time and it would take people's repetition of their experience with us to really start to believe that we meant what we said. So let's talk a little bit about that then, because you say that many traditional headhunters are the blockers. Your view is that you can cross lanes as you want in headhunting. 
Talk a little bit about what you'd seen from the way that traditional headhunters run their businesses and what did you think that you could do differently to become successful in the industry? Of course. So the first thing I'll start with is a number of things, but the first thing is being lateral in your thinking. I think too many recruiters, headhunters, and even the talent themselves can be quite narrow in the way they think about themselves or the CVs that they've got in front of them. So if, for example, you've been a television salesperson, then they contact you about television sales jobs. Or if you've been um, a planner or a strategist or a managing director of a media agency or or a creative agency or an ECRM agency, then that's all you ever get called about. Mm. And my view is, and obviously don't forget, Lighthouse is only ever focused at the board level. But once you get to a board level, my honest view is that you can pivot yourself in a leadership sense to all sorts of things. You Mm. don't, you know, the craft skill for me is a hygiene factor. It's not the ultimate decision making part. And so you needed to open your mind and help the talent open their mind. And certainly I have to help my clients open their mind to more lateral thoughts around who should be on those long lists. So my sense of that was that the the talent would therefore come to Lighthouse because they may be looked at in a much broader frame. It would give them a much wider sense of briefs that we might talk to them about. But for our clients, they also might avoid what we call the usual suspects. Hmm. You know, lots of headhunters roll the Rolodex. It's the same old set of people. You know, you're looking for a chief revenue officer or you're looking for a you know, chief um, st- uh, strategy officer. It's the same old names that will come up over and over again. And to hmm. be perfectly frank, you do not need to pay a headhunter 30% you know, to to go and find those people, you can get on LinkedIn and do it yourself or your internal talent lead can do it for you. Mm. And both of those things have emerged over the last 10 years, as you can imagine. The real skill is understanding the emotional, um, intuitive sense of who these people really are and what is the spirit that's inside this person way beyond the capability and will that individual thrive in this organization beyond any other and unless you really understand a human being unless you've really spent time sitting with them and hearing their success stories and also their sadness to some degree about something you can't really know how they're going to respond in these different environments and I have to do the same with my clients as well so I have to really understand where a business is and what they also need to confront within themselves in order to make these perfect matches if you don't do that it's really hard so when I hear about headhunters that never meet any of their candidates they Mm. do it all on the phone or individuals who will do a polite interview or kind of whip through the cv you know to me you've only touched 25% of who that person really is. Mm. So whilst ours takes more time, it's a lot more handcrafted, if you like. Um, It's worth it because in the experience of our 10 and a half years at Lighthouse, we've never had someone come out of a job that we've put them in in the first couple of years. We, we just we don't get it wrong because we've spent too much time really trying to understand who that person is. Mm. And to be frank, sometimes talking clients out of candidates or talking candidates out of a role that they think they really want, because we can see something that we just know is a red flag later down the line. Hmm. And is that because it's really important to make sure that the culture aligns between the candidate and the and the brand that they're entering into? If they regardless of the skill set from the candidate, no matter how uh, talented they are, if there's a misalignment of culture or values, then that could lead to problems later on down the line. 
Completely so. And I guess we have the privileged vantage point of knowing that maybe this client. So, for example, Havas are now a client of mine. have been a client of mine for a very long time. Peter Mears, the global CEO. We are very good friends and I understand the challenges and the excitement that he has. And I understand how that flows through his business. We've just placed, for example, the new CEO for London for him. And we had a wonderful shortlist of candidates to choose from. And I was able to use my periphery vision, my long term understanding, patterns of behaviours, purpose, values to help steer them through who was the right person and likewise the individual that's gone on to get the role we have known and represented for over 10 years so we know this person very very well um it's the first time we've ever placed them interestingly but we've had lots of conversations with them so by the time they go to offer i'm absolutely certain that that partnership is going to work unless something monumental mm. happens mm. that neither of them can see right now covid-19 <laughs> like covid-19 but i think they're going to be okay so you use all of that knowledge and you can't you can't short circuit that process. It takes time. And I think that's what our clients do pay for is an understanding that the chances are that myself or one of my team will have we're carrying all of that understanding. And I guess that's in the end what they're paying for um, rather than, you know, hopping mm. onto LinkedIn and looking up you know, CEOs, media agencies coming mm. up with a list of 100 of them and thinking that one looks all right. Mm. Super interesting. So so you said the, the business has been around for 10 years. You set up the business 10 years ago. Tell us what the mm. company looks like today. The company uh, in, in many ways looks exactly like we wanted it to, which is mm. a wonderful thing. Mm. Um, we call them lighthouse keepers, the people that work here, all of us, myself included. And I think they're a very clear set of people. And I think a lot of our clients and people that have known us a long time, when we hire someone new, they'll often say to me, I can see why you hired them. They are so lighthouse. It's unbelievable. So mm. very open, very emotional, quite extrovert, mm. uh, slightly nosy, um, <laughs> quite confident, uh, like to know what's really going on. We'll mm. ask the difficult question, uh, are willing to sit in emotional material with people uh, and are also very honest. We're known for being brutally honest about stuff mm. because we think that's the only way to be. Uh, and, you know, I know even when I was at Grace Blue, I remember Gay Haynes said to me, you know, never have a conversation with someone that you're not willing to be overheard. You know, you need to work in the margins and we do work in the margin of, you know, emotional material, but you need to stand by whatever it is you say to someone. You Love need it. to be very happy to stand in that truth. And and in that sometimes, you know, you have levels of conflict. People don't agree with you. People push back on you, uh, et cetera. But you have to be willing to sit in that and say, well, from our point of view, we think this is the most important thing. So Lighthouse mm. still looks like that today. I guess our understanding of the American shores is much broader than it used to be. Mm -hmm. Our understanding of, you know, markets in Germany and Italy and Spain and Netherlands is much broader than it ever was. Mm. Um, you know, we have a, a bigger office. Um, we have uh, a greater, bigger, broader client list. Mm. Um, and I think that we have an ability to pivot a lot easier than we used to because we have just broadened our understanding of different sectors and markets. Mm. But actually the fundamental emotional DNA is absolutely the same. And I, I kind of hope it always will be. Mm. And did you have that intention from the beginning of the company? Did you have a very clear idea in your mind as to what the emotional direction of the company would be, both from the 
its values, its purpose? Was that an intentional thing from day one or has that evolved as time has moved? I think it's absolutely intentional. Hmm. I think it's probably sharpened, but I don't think it's fundamentally changed. And I guess, you know, this is a good and a bad thing in, in all businesses. It comes from the top, right? So hmm. whatever the leader is is communicating and or emitting, that gets into the DNA of the walls of the building and the, and in the individual people. And I think you also have a groundswell. And I think what I love is I've got a number of young people that work here who would also challenge the way that we do things from a technology point of view or a process point of view. And that keeps us fresh and modern for certain. Um, but actually from a values and a purpose and an ethics point of view, I think it, it comes, it has to come from mm. me. I think they look to me for that. And I think, um, I've been a very independent person my entire life and there's been challenges with that emotionally as an independent person, which is I'm not financially beholden to anyone or anything. I've dragged myself up pretty much through life. I've mm. never been reliant on anyone for anything. Mm. And that's not always great and it, it's not always easy. But what it does mean is you can, I can be absolutely true to myself. I am never forced into a corner of having to do something or agree to something that I don't believe in. And the purity of that, Nathan, is such an amazing gift to me. Mm. And sometimes I struggle with people that don't have it. Mm. But actually, the struggle to have it in my personal life has also been quite tough. So in some ways, I wouldn't wish it on people. But on other sides of things, I'm really glad that it's given me the confidence to stand in my own truth, no matter what. It's a huge gift to have that. Hmm. Super fascinating. So, so you said a moment ago, the amazing success of, of Lighthouse, revenue growth, headcount, international expansion, the client list has grown significantly as well over the years. What do you think that you bring to this business that has made you successful? Is it great intellect, great passion, hard work? Um, yeah. I think it's, truth i think when we get briefed for something i will go in on that client until i feel that i've reached the bottom of the story why are you really hiring this person what what has this got to solve or resolve or where will this person take the business to or what it, what are you avoiding in hiring this person like what's the truth of this and what's the truth of your business because i have to look a candidate in the eye and tell them that this really is the best next thing in their career. Hmm. And if I don't believe that, for whatever reason, I'm doing them a great disservice. Hmm. I have to believe it. And likewise with a candidate, if, for example, I know that they came out of a job two years ago in a sticky situation or a difficulty um, or something happened that has some level of conflict, if that person can't be really honest with me about it behind closed doors, I can't represent them. But the benefit of both of those different conversations is when we do put people together, we put them together in truth. We put them together in the rawest form of who they are and what it is they're trying to do. And if you do that, only great things can come. If something's left in the shadows, you can bet your bottom dollar it's going to come out in mm. some form or fashion. Mm. I, I do think it's like dating. I think it's, you know, with my girlfriends now that are still single and, you know, they'll meet these guys online or girls online or whatever. And 
you know, I'm a big fan of asking some of the difficult questions because if you don't really understand what's happened and has that person learned from whatever it is that happened, sure. then there's going to be repetition. You know, there's going to be, you know, confirmation bias. There's going to mm. be stuff that comes into this that will get in the way. So when people meet in truth without any um, pretense or barrier or artificial layering, mm. wonderful, wonderful things happen. So my job is to encourage everyone to be as truthful as possible. And and I think that's that's the primary reason that I think we've been successful, because if you are truthful, then you you are trusted and I think in the headhunting space, trust is the number one thing that both parties need from you. Hmm, super interesting. You recruit for a number of executive level positions across the media and marketing landscape. You would assume that that comes with its own level of ego or uh, conscientiousness. These people to have achieved what they've achieved in their career, very diligent, very hardworking, very conscientious, not used to people uh, saying no to them, also being very high achievers in their own right. How do these people react when they don't get the job? You know, again, we have to handle that with great empathy because it can be devastating to some people that have really set their hearts on it. And our journey through that, we never really let a client meet more than four candidates. So our job is to filter, filter, filter until we think these are the four. But that means that all four of those finalists have a fair chance at this role and they know that and they feel that. And we will guide them through where their, you know, superpowers are and where maybe there's a bit of a gap and, the, and a probe area, both for our clients and the candidate. So we always start with the same thing, which is it's not good news this time. And we will spend time with them to talk about why they didn't get it. Mm. And is it something they could have done? Is it something that was missing? Was it just purely chemical? Mm. But we will always promise them again the truth because they can only learn from that truth. And they may want to push back. They may disagree. Often they do absolutely disagree. Most people that have some level of self-awareness understand that there was a reason why. Um, and as best as I can, I would never let my client hire the wrong person. So I'm also protecting my client at the same time. So I have to own that part too. So holding someone through that, holding someone through disappointment is really important because you, you want them to feel that, of course, they're valued and cherished and cared about. And we do really care about our candidates very much. They're people, they're human beings. But our job is to also help them understand why. And if we're not truthful, we can't really help them. So we have to bring the truth to that conversation mm. as well. Um, and if they want to meet with us afterwards to talk it over in person or whatever, we'll give them as much time as they need. Mm. So it's coming to terms with it. It's hoping that in a matter of weeks or months, something else will come along and maybe they'll get that one. And actually, that's because that was the one they should have had all along. Again, it's a bit like relationships. Mm. I, I think there's something very similar, mm. similar in it. Mm. Um so yeah, you've just got to you just got to hold someone through that. We have a duty of care. And I always say to our team, we have a duty of care to our candidates and to our clients and they must come first. So, yes, an ego might come in and you'll see the ego in flashes of anger or you'll see the ego in flashes of sort of self-deprecation. Um, I understand that we all need an ego. We can't we can't operate without an ego. It, it often gets striped up as a bad thing. Mm. But, you know, in a psychotherapeutic sense, mm. we have an ego, we have an id and we have a super ego. Mm. At the senior level, the super ego comes out a lot. That's the one that says I should have got it because I'm fabulous. And the id is the one that says well, I didn't want it anyway. Who cares? <laughs> you sure. know. 
So I, I can handle both of those right. things and so can my team. And I think we're very understanding and forgiving of that. We mm. have to be because we've all been in those shoes at some point. We've all not got something that we really wanted in yeah. life and we understand. So we're back to empathy again. Mm. Super interesting. Let's talk a little bit about Adweek Europe. In 2009, mm. you became the co-producer and chair of the Advisory Advertising Week Europe, the premier event for uh, marketing, brand advertising, technology professionals based in New York, London, Tokyo, Mexico City, Sydney and Johannesburg. What's it like putting on a, an event of that scale? Do you know, it's tremendous fun. It's joyful and it's fun and it's terrifying. <laughs> and uh, Matt Schechner, who is the founder of Advertising Week Europe, who many people will know, um, is one of the most creatively audacious people I've ever met in my career. Um, he is one of the most persuasive. I love that term, creatively um, audacious. Love it. Oh, my goodness, he's audacious. Mm. And um, and what I love about Matt is um, the answer is never, ever no. The answer is that's interesting. Let's go further. Let's explore it. Let's try. Um, he is able to relate to everybody and anybody. He's a brilliant example, actually, of a connector where you know, he will know the first name of every doorman, of every, you know, office, business, receptionist Amazing. that he visits. And he will know the global chief executive's children's names Amazing. of every client that we do business with. And he is genuine in the way that he does that. I have honestly never met anybody like it. He's a phenomenal, phenomenal Amazing. man. And I just was very lucky that I went and spoke. I persuaded someone to let me go and speak at the version of it that had been running for 15 years in New York. I met Matt in the green room um, and he, of course, took the mickey out of me because that's what that's how Matt, you know, sort of converses right. in life. OK. And uh, I love pranks and I love comedy. And again, I'm sort of I hope I think I'm very, very egalitarian in the sense that I, I treat everybody the same. And I try to. Um, and so we just hit it off. And I just said to him, why are you not doing anything like this in London? Like, I think we really need it in London where everybody comes together under one roof. Uh, for a week, we suddenly drop our defenses. We're not competitive with each other anymore. Mm. We will go and see each other's things. We will go to each other's parties. We will celebrate what we can do as an industry together. Mm. And then the next following Monday, we're all at loggerheads again and we're all competing for the same sure. revenue again. That's okay. But for a week, we don't do that. And right. so I said to Matt, again, you know, understanding that Matt and I had never met before, I just said to him, come to London for a week when you can. I won't headhunt for a week, but I'll take you into all of my clients and we will see if we can persuade them to uh, sponsor, invest in putting this event on. Um, and that's what he did. You know, I chased him up a couple of weeks later and said, I meant it. Like, why don't you come? I had no idea if we could do it. I didn't really know Matt very well, but I just felt, again, mm. I'm quite intuitive. There was something about him. Mm. So he came for a week and I literally took him in a black cab around every media owner that you can imagine and a few agencies. Um, and at the time, ITV, uh, Chris Goldson, LinkedIn, Josh Graff, there was a number of people who said, we can see the vision uh, and we believe in it. And yet yeah, we'll give you some money to give it a go. And so hmm. we needed to raise just over a million pounds the, the first year to get it off the ground. I mean, it's a huge thing to put on. Hmm. Uh, we had to find all the venues. We were determined to make it creative. It wasn't going to be held in a Hilton or something like that. Sure. Um, and so we persuaded BAFTA, who, again, is a private member, so they would never let anybody use their building for a commercial event. 
Matt Schechner managed to convince them to Amazing. do that. I remember being in a black cab with Matt on our way down to see Microsoft and we drove past Buckingham Palace and Matt said, well, let's do one of the events at Buckingham <laughs> Palace. And sure, like, of course. Matt, you, you can't just hire Buckingham Palace. You need to have it sponsored. <laughs> Before it. we knew it, he'd made friends with a number of the palace officials um, and actually very quickly we did use St. James's Palace. We used um, Kensington Palace. Amazing. Um, and I, only a few years ago, sat in a beautiful room in Buckingham Palace having lunch with Matt Schechner and a couple of members of the royal family because he'd managed to do it. So this guy is phenomenal. <laughs> and I am lucky that we ended up being business partners together. I, I was there for the ride and it's been it's been amazing. But yeah, terrifying, fun, joyful. Yeah. Um, and it's helped me to really be connected to our industry in a way that mm. I could never have imagined. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. Sounds like a fantastic mentor, Matt Shetner. And we'll come back to mentors later on in the show because um, I want to know who else you've been influenced by. Past speakers of Advertising Week have been, and this is not an exhaustive list, but Ariana Huffington, Al Gore, Malcolm Gladwell, who I am just the biggest fan of in life, Venus Williams, Shel Sandberg, and Sir Martin Sorrell, to name a few. You've interviewed so many leading names question is have you ever been starstruck do you know i genuinely nathan never have been amazing and i think that's one of my superpowers in a way because i genuinely love people and i'm so curious as to how people have been brought up you know how they are the way that they are even if they're difficult i'm curious as to why why um, then my the curiosity over or supersedes any nerves or starstruckness that I have. Mm. Um, so I don't. I do my research. I think mm. it's it's respectful to do your research. So I research the hell out of people. I ring a lot of people beforehand to find out about them. I feel that I have a duty of care to the audience to ask the questions that they probably want you to ask mm. rather than just the standard questions that everybody would mm. ask. And I think I have a duty of care to the person being interviewed that that they will enjoy it because so many of them are famous. They've been interviewed a thousand times. Right. It's probably quite boring for yeah. them, maybe. So my view is, can I go a little bit further? Can I get them to tell a story or to divulge something or share something that maybe hasn't been aired before? Um I guess I'm quite competitive, so that probably comes out in that as well. Mm. Um, but my view is to not not to wrong foot people because that would be unkind, but to take them to somewhere that yeah. maybe touches a part of them that um, just reveals or takes off a layer that that is comfortable, but you know, inspiring and curious for people that are listening in. Most difficult interview you've done. Mark Reed at WPP. Ah, why? Which was only last year. He's a wonderful man and what he's doing with that network is phenomenal and, and mm. the team that he's building around him as well. You can see the change that he's making. But I think Mark would say by his own admission that he's relatively introvert. Mm. He's private about his private life, which he has every right to be. I think at the time, you know, all the shareholders were looking at him. Anytime he spoke in public, it got blown up in the press to something else. I think Martin Sorrell, who I, I would count as also a friend of mine, was, you know, coming after him left, right and centre. So all the mm. game playing was going on at that time. And I remember us being in the green room and I hope Mark wouldn't mind me saying this. And he he said to me, you know, I noticed reading your background last night that you're a psychotherapist and I'm not sure I should be doing this interview. 
So the fact that he said that in the green room kind yeah. of set us up. Right. He, okay. He was interesting. Utterly professional and yeah. polished and lovely and yeah. generous, gorgeous. But I, but I, I found him hardest to interview of all the people that I have. And yet, ironically, I interviewed Sorrel the next day. Right. And obviously, it was the beginning of that when that was all going on. And actually, Sorrel was the one I was concerned about because, and again, he would admit this himself. He's a classic politician, which is you'll ask him a question, but he'll answer the question he wants to ask. His own question. And and sometimes for 45 minutes. (laughs) So my worry was that I'd ask the question and he would talk over me for 45 minutes and it would be humiliating. To his credit, he didn't. He was utterly charming. He was very personal and personable and and was also quite self-deprecating about his own his own behavior and so i found him yeah he, he was he was much easier than i thought really interview that you've enjoyed the most uh probably jeff brazier uh the guy that was on shipwrecked and then was married to jade goody and okay. had the children interesting um, because i think jeff has done a fair amount of his own self-exploration he's very willing to tell his backstory with great rawness and, and great emotion. And actually on stage that day, he he was very, very open about the struggles that he's had himself and um, what he was growing and becoming. Uh, and there'd been great tragedy in his background and yet what he's managed to achieve is incredible. He's much more um, intellectual than you give him credit for. He's much more willing to be to own his own mistakes than you'd mm. think he'd be willing for, given he's in the public eye. Mm. And I just, uh, I really felt a bond with him. I, I really understood him. And I think the feedback we had from the audience that day was unbelievable. So based on the people that you've interviewed so far, what would you say are the common traits, characteristics, habits, behaviours, and I guess more importantly, ways of thinking of the most successful people that you've met thus far. What do you think separates the the good from the best? It sounds um, simple and emotional, but it's open heartedness. Have they got to the point in their career? It's not about age. It's about emotional maturity where they are able to be truthful about themselves and are they able to be open-hearted about what's really going on for them. Hmm. I think I meet many leaders who are still very defended because they feel they have to be. You know, they're in a competitive situation. They've got shareholders. Maybe their leadership's being questioned. Maybe their business is is either going through hyper-growth, so they've got to be on their guard, or they're having a difficulty, so they're also on their guard. It is those that are able to really sit and be honest with you and open-hearted about their own um, challenges, the business challenges, and where they go to for support or or, um, inspiration. And once someone's got to that point in their career, they're an utter joy to spend time with. And you notice the difference it makes to their leadership because people that work for them trust them. They'll go over hot coals for them. They could pivot the business overnight and people would just say, fine, we trust you and we will go with it because mm. you are so open with us about what's happening. Mm. When I worked for um, Fru Hazlitt when I was at Virgin Radio, she's an epitome of that. She's she's utterly open. And sometimes people would say to her detriment, but I don't believe that. I think she, she garnered so much loyalty because of that. And I think the leaders that I noticed that are steering their businesses to better 
different, healthier shores are those that have got to that point because people know where they are with them. And once you have that clarity and we're back to honesty and truth again and empathy, magic happens and you see it happen. I see it happen with the businesses that I work with. You know, at the moment, someone like Jim and Ette at Engine Group right now, you know, they're just really open about what they're trying to do. And, you know, I send people in to interview with them who are not sure if they want to work at that company and they sit with Jim or they sit with Ette for an hour and they come back and say, I need to work for those two individuals. It's that powerful. Mm. And so this leadership piece um, is so much more critical now than I think it's ever been. And I think will be actually, given what we're going through right now is none of us know where we are or what's going to happen. We're feeling a bit lost and a bit discombobulated and we're not quite sure where the ground point is at the moment. So we're relying on these leaders to be open hearted and honest about what's going on to hold us through this period of time. And I think you're going to see the need for that more than you've ever seen it before. Hmm. One more question about leadership, because you obviously hire for leadership positions from some of the biggest companies in the in the world. How have the characteristics of successful leaders changed since you founded Lighthouse? Because you would argue that 10 plus years ago, the the leader archetype was the one that was very much, uh, you know, you know, leading from the front, has a, sing- a single minded, determined uh, charismatic, uh, you know, had all of these quite traditional sort of male stereotypes invariably um, as what a traditional leader should be. How has that changed over the last 10 plus years or so? I think it's made a, a huge um, switch out, which is the dictatorial kind of my way or the highway, mm. um, only responding when you're asked a question Mm. type leadership it's completely out of fashion and I think those that behave in that way are seen as the dinosaurs in our industry and you see it in male and female constituent parts Mm. of that I think those that are you know you saw it first whether you like them or not you saw it first with the Facebooks and those kinds of businesses where they would have these big town halls but you were able to contribute a question you were able to put your hand up and ask Zuckerberg something that you really wanted to ask. And he was exposed and had to answer the question on the fly there and then. Mm. And I think you've seen more and more of that happen where actually your exposure to the leader is absolute and direct. And I think it has to be. And that's quite a lot of hard work for a leader. If you've got a lot of people that report into you, that's a lot to do. But I think people need to to believe that what they're seeing of their leader is authentic. And yes, there's been lots of chat about authentic leadership for the last decade, but what does that really mean? And it means, I think, a leader also being vulnerable. It is a leader saying, actually, we're struggling with this problem, or actually, maybe we didn't get that right, and we failed, and we've got to switch out and do something differently. So this sort of perfect, Hmm. um, sort of curated um, leader that's uber polished, never gets it wrong, mm. goes into hiding if the, if it's difficult or is protected by a bunch of flunkies, mm. that's completely gone out of fashion. Direct one-to-one contact is the way forward in the same that one-to-one marketing is what we're all looking for right mm. now. There's something in, in the leadership space that's the same. And I think people have been exposed. We come back to values or purpose and, you know, businesses that aren't paying their taxes or individuals who you know, talk about 
DNI or mental health in the workplace and they come up with an initiative to tick a box, but they're not really living that day to day and they'll get called out on it. So the ability to call people out on it, and social media has certainly helped with that, I think has in some ways negatively but necessarily forced companies and leaders into behaving in a way that they say that they truly are. Hmm. But I also think that leaders have become more able to understand that their vulnerability is a strength and not a weakness. Super interesting. You talk about DNI there. Um, that leads me on to my next question. I, I think most leaders would recognize the business case for DNI, more creativity, different perspectives. We're able to reflect society better and sell our products and services more efficiently and effectively. Um, and yet we're not seeing the mainstream adoption of DNI that many expected or hoped for. Why not? It reminds me a little bit of where we were with females, you know, a decade ago. Mm. And the um, uncomfortable current status is we worry it's going to take as long mm. and it shouldn't. So what can we do to make it faster? Mm. And it is about if you can't see it, you can't believe it or be it. So you've got something about role models and people encouraging their way through but you've also got um, a lazy answer of, well, there aren't enough people to choose from. And I, but again, the DNI for me is the breadth of all of that. So as a therapist, I would also say you've got to look at it from a social perspective. You've got to look at it from a mental health perspective. You've got to look at it from a from a BAME perspective right across the piece. And I think still people are seeing it as either female only. They're hanging on to those statistics because they've finally done something about it. Or they're saying, oh, yes, at the lower levels, at the grassroots level, we're bringing people up and through, but we don't have it at the board level because there aren't enough candidates of different, you know, diversity um, types to hire in. But is that wholly true? Are we asking the right questions? Are we looking at it through the right level of lens? You know, we, of course, can talk about quotas and some of the forced measures of that. And to be perfectly frank, I was never, ever a fan of quotas. Mm. But I've got to tell you, I can see how they've worked in businesses that have absolutely insisted on it as well. Mm. Um, I think there's also something about our fear in that fear about what questions we can ask, what questions we're not allowed to ask. You know, what would be seen as um, racist or what would be seen as um, misogynistic, uh, misogynistic, or, or, all or of those pieces. Of yeah. I'll give a really quick example. I, I, a really good friend of mine, Lucy Clayton, has written a brilliant book a few months ago called How to Go to Work, which I absolutely love. And if any of your listeners have got kids that are about to go to work or indeed you're coming back to work, it's a brilliant book. Hmm. But at her book launch, um, I was with a bunch of people. And I saw a group of people that I knew really well. And the lazy and easy thing would, after a long day at work, would have been to go and have a glass of red wine with that set of people. But I also saw a bunch of other people that I didn't know. And I thought, you know, what? I'm going to launch myself into that group and see what happens. Long story short, there was an incredible woman in that group called Antonia. But Antonia used to be a man and she's now a woman. Mm -hmm. And she had uh, she had traveled this entire journey. And I sat talking to her, realizing that, but feeling that I didn't know her and I couldn't ask any question. But long story short, we end up spending an hour and a half and I could ask her those questions. And she made it very clear to me that I could ask her anything that I wanted. And I asked her all of the 
nonsense light mm. questions that I asked to all the really difficult moral emotion mm. sexual questions that mm. you'd probably want to ask someone that had gone through that but you would feel that maybe you couldn't sure. and she made it so easy for me to do that and I learned more in that conversation about transgender individuals of all sorts of different levels whether you've had operations or not whether you've had hormones or not whether you are out there or not with it and she did so much for me to understand that, that I now will be able to be much more capable when I'm in an environment with someone else again, um, that it was such an amazing gift that she did that for me. Super and my view is the same for any level of diversity. It's mm. like if I'm, you know, given I'm a therapist, I'm very comfortable with the autistic spectrum, for example, but many, many people aren't. So if someone says to me in an interview, actually, I'm, I'm you know, I've been diagnosed with Asperger's, for example, I have some comprehension because I'm a therapist of what that means. But many people don't and many people are not sure how they ask that question or what they do. Hmm. Equally, you know, I come from, I now have a degree, but I didn't have a degree because I left school at 18. And so from a kind of intellectual perspective, I would often feel excluded because I didn't go to university or would feel that I was judged hmm. for that. Hmm. I think we've got to look at all of the education diversity pieces as well. And, you know, we've taken, we've hired people that are 16 that have got a couple of GCSEs and taken them up and through the business and they've been incredible. So it, it's at play in every form of diversity of whatever mm. that means. I honestly think as someone who's a human connector and a therapist that it starts with the ability to ask honest questions without the fear of being in trouble, getting it wrong, offending someone. I think that's one of the things that's held us back more than anything. Mm. Really well said. You also said that you are a trained psychotherapist, and that's something that I'm super interested to find out more about. You're an accredited psychotherapist, should I say. Uh, and many would say that that's not really a skill set that would be necessary for your current job. How did that come about? Um well, we go back to the beginning, I suppose, which was always being fascinated by people and connecting to people. But a year into Lighthouse, um, I interviewed someone and I always start in the UK with where was home? What did mum and dad do? What did you want to be when you were a kid? It's, it's incredibly, you know, enlightening when mm. you ask those questions, even of Mark Reed or Martin Sorrell, mm. who very politely answered those questions. Mm. But on this particular day, I'd asked someone who we'd headhunted and he was very clear that he didn't want to talk about his family. His body language was uncomfortable. He then said, you know, I really would rather not talk about my family. And it was very clear again, empathetically, that something had happened. And, and, you know, everybody's entitled to hold their own story. They don't have sure. to share it, of course. So we talked about his journey from university and upwards, and we did an hour or so together and talked about his career and other things. And at the end, he said, listen, Kathleen, I will I will tell you about, you know, my backstory. And I said, you, you don't have to. Like, it's okay. And he said, no, I will. Again, back to trust. Uh, and he said, my dad shot my mum. And in that moment, I realized that if I wanted to ask these questions, I had to accept that sometimes the mm. answer is really difficult and I needed to understand how to handle that mm. if that was going to happen. I think in the moment I did handle it. I've got, you know, my own backstory is pretty hairy, so I'm not very shockable. But I, I was more conscious that this individual had come for an interview about his career and I'd opened something mm. that maybe he had no intention of sure. opening for. And I also knew as I shut the door of the office that day that he was going back to his day job 
having just spoken about something sure. that maybe he compartmentalizes to, to keep himself safe and happy. Mm. So I thought my duty of care again comes in, which is I need to extend that to how I um, think about how I handle those questions. And I thought I'll maybe go and do a counseling course or something, an evening class or a, a sort of a year course in counseling. And in my second lecture, I, I decided to, I looked around and I, I went to Regents University to do it. And they actually had a psychotherapy um, course for a year that was like a foundation course. And um, my lecturer in the second lecture said, if you don't know what you're doing in this space, if you sort of tiptoe around it or you sort of have a little dalliance in it and then start sort of trying to practice, mm. you can do as much damage as a brain surgeon. Amazing. You know, the human mind is so fragile that you have to understand what you're doing mm. and that was it. I, I just felt I didn't want to be someone that would dabble, you know, dabble. Yeah. I, I needed to do it properly. Yeah. And, you know, to train as a psychotherapist is a five and a half year training course. Um, a lot of practice. You have Amazing. to get your pilot's license, a lot of investment, a lot of reading. Um, and I decided, OK, that's what I'm going to do. So mm. I, I did that alongside working full time and setting up and running the lighthouse Amazing. business. And it's been a massive gift and it hugely supports what I do as a headhunter mm. because it really helps me understand what's really going on for somebody. Mm. Massive differentiator and a huge learning curve as well. Uh, I'm sure for your own growth journey, it's been uh, phenomenal. Um, I've only got you for a few more minutes, Kathleen. So let's get into everyone's favorite questions. These are the questions that I ask all of my guests. So I'm really excited to ask you some of them as well. Okay. Uh, some fun, lighthearted uh, easier questions, I think, but I'll let you be the judge of that. First question, tell us about a time when you failed and what you learned from the experience. I failed in my relationship with my children's father, who's a wonderful, wonderful man, and we are very good friends, but um, I I didn't manage to sa save that relationship. Mm. And, um, and as much as we have... Uh, for the last 18 years since that happened, built something of trust and something of worth. I I felt the failure of that. I felt mm. I wasn't mature enough. I wasn't wise enough. Um, I wasn't open-minded enough to understand what was really happening between us. And I now have that knowledge and I'm grateful for that. And I take that forward into my future life. But I felt the failure of that. And I, you know, I felt the sadness of that for my children and our families and for him. Mm. And I, I will always hold that in my heart somewhere. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. So many people ask that question to talk about a client opportunity that they lost <laughs> or some, <laughs> something to that effect. Uh, but uh, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, mentors. Uh, you've mentioned Matt Shetner as a, as a key influence on your life as, as a mentor. Tell us about some of your other early mentors who influenced the way that you think about growing businesses, uh, media, marketing uh, and leadership. I've been so blessed. I literally have a roll call of them. So <laughs> um, I worked for Theo Pafitas, who was one of the dragons Amazing. and Dragon's Den. Amazing. I worked for him for a year and we are still friends. We still have dinner. Um, and he taught me the value of money. He taught me how to negotiate. He took me to meetings that I really shouldn't have been in. Mm. Um, he taught me how to hold my nerve Uh many things through Hasler. I've mentioned one of the most human uh, bosses I've ever had, you know, really, really having faith in people, um, taking chances, standing up to authority, 
um, being mischievous. You know, she was a mischievous saleswoman and I love her for all of those things as well. But she was also deeply emotional and happy to bring that emotion to work. She brought her whole self to the office mm. and she taught me how to do that without any apology. Um, I think people like Jay Haynes at Grace Blue, one of the most generous human beings on the planet. He taught me how to be a headhunter. We are still great friends uh, to this day and he's deeply emotional. He cares about people in a way that I've never seen before. So he's wonderful too. Mm. But I would also say this, you know, my chairman, Nick Caldwell, absolutely the partners at PhD. But I've also had some really bad bosses mm. and you know, Bruce Daisley, who's obviously up until now was at Twitter and has written that mm. great book about the joy of work. He's mm -hmm. got the bad boss helpline and I could have run it, <laughs> run it, run it several times. <laughs> you know what? You also, Nathan, I think we learn from those experiences too. Yeah. You know, I've had misogynistic bosses. I was once told I was hired for aesthetic reasons. If only that were the case at 47. Um, I had some bosses who, you know, reneged on promises or misogynistic or you know, just downright aggressive. And I think we learn from those people too. We learn what not to do as much mm. as we learn what to do. Mm. And I think at the time they're painful, but you look back on it and they're also a gift in their own right. But mm. I feel very supported by our fraternity. There's a lot of senior people, even through advertising week at the beginning, who didn't need to support me or didn't need to support the business or didn't need to believe in me, but they chose to. And I never, ever forget that. You know, our first client was Steve Hatch, um, who's now at Facebook. He was our first ever client for Lighthouse. I still have the first invoice. I still have a, a copy of the first check that we were given. Mm. And he didn't need to give me that search. There were more established headhunting firms at the time, but he did. And his belief in me, of course, powered us on to do many other things, but I never forget that. Mm. Beautiful. Books. Tell us about some of your favorite books, fiction, nonfiction, whatever. I love a lot of therapeutic books now because of what I do for a living. And whenever we do event, a big annual event at the Lighthouse, I always make sure we give a book away. Um, one of my favorite books is called Love's Executioner. It's by Yalom, who's a very classic, uh, still just about a live therapist talking about his experiences of human encounter. So it's not about whether you're a therapist or not. It's about what happens when two people meet in the same way that we are at the moment, Nathan? You know, what's going on for us individually? What's being projected onto the other? What's our experience? What do we take? What do we not take? What do we get offended by? Um, and understanding those interactions. And I think in the end, if you cut me down the middle, I'm a human connector. In all the jobs that I do, in the end, that's what I do. And I think Yalom's book um, is all about that. And, and I find that so fascinating because he's so brutally honest about the mistakes that he makes in those encounters mm. as much as, you know, the successes. So I love, love Yalom. Um, I absolutely love things. There's a book called Untethered Soul, which I love, which is mm. about, you know, can you unlock yourself from all that you were taught rightly or wrongly and can you become the soul that you're meant to be mm. um but equally i remember my coach at the time giving me a brilliant book called top grading which is about how to yes. really spot you know right. some of the talent. best individuals you know what what is the talent what can you learn in the data around high performance and hyper performance mm. and in my headhunting space you know i will still go back to some of the critical questions that they suggest in that book when i'm interviewing to understand i always ask someone you know, when's the last time you felt professionally vulnerable? Always. You know, vulnerable is not a very masculine word. So no. for particularly strong masculine <laughs> leaders, I'll always ask that question <laughs> to see where they go to sure. with it. I think it's important. So 
I think certainly books like that. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm fascinated by how we can learn. And so most of the books that really make you question what you think you know, mm. they're the ones that I love. I fell mm. out of books for a while. When I qualified as a therapist, you have to read so many books that you end up becoming sick of reading. Really? And I, I lost my love for a little while. Mm. Um, but then I slowly got kind of back into it. I'm sure there's a book in me somewhere as well, but it's not, it's there not come yet. There has to be. <laughs> what, what book are you reading at the moment? Or what was the last book that you read that you really loved? I'm reading a book at the moment called Breaking and Mending. Um, it's by a female doctor. It's mm. a little bit like Adam what's it, Adam Kay's book, which says this may hurt a little bit. It's okay. the story of someone wanting to be a doctor their entire life and and the truth of how you sometimes in therapy, we call it rupture and repair. She's called the book Breaking and Mending. Sometimes we have to break in order to mend to become something better. And actually, if we're going to full circle this conversation, you know, we're living in week five of COVID as we report mm. this. I think we're all breaking a little bit at the moment and we have to understand that we will mend. The question is, can we mend to something better than what has gone before? Mm. You you said a moment ago that you're 47 years old. I never would have put you anywhere near that at all. What Bless do you do? You. <laughs> what do you do to keep <laughs> mentally and physically fit? Do you know what? I don't really drink. I've never taken mm. a drug in my life. I've never even smoked a cigarette. Damn I'm really boring. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that probably answers the, the skin right. question Some is that it. I've never right. done those things. I'm not fit physically at all. I don't go to the gym. I've run marathons and I've done boxing and I, I have, I'm very target driven. So if someone says, let's go and do this, that has an end game, I will throw myself at it. Mm. But I don't belong to a gym and I don't do anything for fitness. And it is something I have to turn my attention to now as I get older, because mm. uh, I think that my, I need to take care of, you know, the mechanical part that keeps the mind going. My mental fitness, um, I will always be in therapy. I think I believe in being in therapy as a therapist. I have to have a supervisor every week. So I also am in supervision. And I think that keeps you honest around what's really going on for you. I have somewhere safe to take all those thoughts and all those challenges. Um, and I obviously have a lot of friends that are therapists. So that's a blessing and a curse at times as well. So I think that's there. I meditate. I, I believe very strongly in meditation. I find guided meditation better for me. My mind is very active, as you can probably tell. So I need something to guide me through um, those quiet moments. And as simple as it is, I'm a big believer in breathing. And I use breath and sound a lot in my own therapy work with my mm. clients. I think the power of music as well is very grounding for me. I, can, I use music to really guide me through the best times and the most difficult times. And that's important. And of course, being connected, I, I have an amazing set of friends. Mm. Um, I don't really have much of a family. I only really have a brother who's amazing in Portugal, but my, my friends are my family. Mm. My coach, uh, you know, she calls it your urban kin. <laughs> and I love that love expression. That. Yeah. Um, I have a very strong urban kin who I'm there for, but they're there for me. But again, I was always the one that people came to. And I think I had to learn to also be sometimes the person that would go to them. So I had to learn my own vulnerability mm. because I used to find that excruciating. But I got there in the end. Mm. In the last three to five years, what ideas, behaviors or habits have you added or removed from your life that have improved your outcomes? I've learned the power of boundaries. I've really, really learned the power of boundaries. What, you know, what is not acceptable to me behaviorally, what is not acceptable to me in business, 
Um, at what point I have to say no for my own health. Um, at what point I have to learn to disappoint people because um, if I only ever please them, then I do that at the detriment to myself or my team or my children. Or so boundaries uh, have been really, really important, and to and to stick to those boundaries uh, more than anything. So boundaries have made a difference. Um, being true to myself around the work that I won't do. So therapeutic clients that I won't work with, um, headhunting clients that I won't represent. Um, you know, they say a principle is only a principle when it costs you something. Hmm. And I've learned that. And I'm very, very willing to turn away money, clients, experiences if I feel principles are being challenged or crossed. And I'm very, very clear about that. Um, and once you've done it a few times, it becomes easier to do it again, mm. to hold your nerve and to and to say, no, I'm I'm not willing to behave in that way or, or to be treated in that way. So that's very true. Um, and I guess, you know, we've been offered to be bought a couple of times as well. Lighthouse has. And a couple of times it's not been right for what would happen to my team or what would happen to people that I am working with or my partners and my principles around what they mean to me and what their loyalty to me means to me versus maybe my own personal fortune. And when you're faced with that, it's quite a decision. And I don't judge anyone that goes the opposite way with it and takes the money. But my view was that I have to look myself in the mirror every day and I have to be comfortable with who I am and what I've done. And I, I don't particularly have a faith, but I do have a conscience. And I think my conscience is the thing that, um, as you get older and the more experiences you're faced with, your conscience gets scratched at and you have to be clear about where you begin and end. And I think I'm very, very clear on that now more than I ever have been. What advice do you give to a millennial or a young person who says that they want to start their career in the media or advertising world? I think our sector is one of the easiest to get into if you have the right attitude. Do your research, be passionate, Get the job and then worry about if you want it. Um, show that you'll go the extra mile. Volunteer for everything. Be happy to start at the bottom. Lose your ego. Attach yourself to senior people. Be useful. Be at service to. Be clear about who you might have a duty of care to. The rest will take care of itself. It's really simple. Love it. And Kathleen, my final question, what do you know about growing a business today or what do you know about the media, marketing and advertising world today that you wish you knew when you started your career all those years ago? Be audacious. Start at the top. Don't ask for something too small. Um, if you don't ask, you don't get. And don't ever take no for an answer. Take the no in a classic sales frame. Take the no as the beginning of a relationship. We have been speaking with Kathleen Saxton. She is currently the founder of The Lighthouse Company. If you enjoyed this conversation, then head over to Apple Podcasts where you can listen to 74 such conversations we've had now with world-class sales and marketing leaders thank you for all your feedback and suggestions on linkedin and email write to me at nathan at agencydealmasters.com please head over to itunes and give us a review follow me on twitter at nathan Anibaba. we would be unable 
to do this show without our very own deal masters ahmed ahmed is our editor genevieve mcgecky is our booker slash project manager marion begum is our head of research i'm nathan annie barber you've been listening to agency deal masters